Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to USA Football's Coach and Coordinator Podcast, where top football coaches from around the country share their stories, philosophies, concepts, and strategies to help you get better on and off the field. Now, here's your host, Keith Grabowski. Well, if you listen to the podcast regularly, you know that I enjoy collecting and reading out-of-print old coaching books, and in front of me today is Daryl Royal Talks Football. At the time, he was the head football coach at the University of Texas, uh, and this was written in 1963. Daryl was the head football coach there for 20 years, 1957 and 1976, and did not have a single losing season during that time. He's in the College Football Hall of Fame, was inducted in 1983, and was just a brilliant football mind and, and really also had a great relationship with a lot of the top coaches of that time, including one of my favorites, Woody Hayes. So in this particular chapter that I read, as in uh, most of the books that I find, it's really timeless. And the title of the chapter is The Simple Life in Coaching. And Coach Royal talks about being simple and the simplicity of the game and being able to get players to play aggressively. And at the time he's writing this, like... um, you know, the players are different now. We need to treat them differently. And a lot of the things that we say today. So I find that a lot of times, whether it's Newt Rotney writing in the 1920s uh, or somebody writing today, that a lot of good coaching is, is simply timeless. And you see those same themes again and again. And so I want to go through this chapter. It's a short chapter, but I felt it was worth sharing. And uh, I'll make a few comments along the way, but I think most of this chapter speaks for itself, and I wanted to be able to share it with you. So he starts, Occasionally during a football season, a coach wrestles with insomnia. Instead of counting sheep jumping over a fence, he sees left halfbacks dropping screen passes and centers bouncing the ball to the punter. I found a personal cure for sleeplessness if it could be only arranged at the proper time and place. At a football clinic or gathering of coaches, let somebody get up to the blackboard, start drawing play diagrams, and lecturing on the complexities of the junction block by the fullback or similar subjects, and I can work up a snore with remarkable ease. There have been some great football coaches dwelt on technical thoroughness. Dr. Jock Sutherland, the famous Pittsburgh coach, once lectured two solid hours on a single off-tackle play. I certainly don't wish to criticize devoted attention to detail. We all have learned from these technicians. The plays the offenses are running, the blocking assignments, the defensive moves, 
They are essential, and your coaching staff must know them well and teach them thoroughly. The next section is the whys of football. But the really interesting information, I think, is what the other coaches are doing in regard to squad discipline, squad morale, squad aggressiveness, and similar aspects of the business. When a coach starts talking about why he did certain things, why he installed a certain play, that's when I perk up and start listening. Not how he did it, but why. People often ask about the shop talk when coaches get together. Say when Bobby Dodd, Frank Broyles, Woody Hayes, and some of us gather in a hotel room for a bowl session. Well, for one thing, we very seldom draw diagrams. What I usually ask is, when they stop their scrimmaging during the week, how much hard work do they schedule, or how can they tell when to lighten their drills? I'm always interested when they talk about the psychological approach to their squads. What is their relationship with the players? Is it stern? Is it informal? I want to know how they handle a squad before a game. Do they favor a long warm-up drill, or would they rather stay longer in the dressing room? I'm interested in how their coaching authority is delegated. What is the chain of command in the athletic department? How they work with their publicity directors, even how they plan and fill their television programs. As an example, the question most frequently asked me nowadays is about the flip-flop offense, which originated at Texas in 1961. Coaches want to know the reasoning behind it, why we switch our linemen from one side to the other, how it has been to our advantage. They don't care about the selection of personnel or what plays we're running. They can diagram most blocking assignments on most everyone's plays in deepest sleep. They want to know why we felt this offensive plan was an advantage. I think that's some interesting perspective there as we come out of this COVID-19 just Zoom sessions left and right and learning about all these different concepts. And there was so much on the how, but I think as I've looked at a lot of these, we're still missing a lot of the why. And I know a lot of things are up in the air. There's parts of the country that will not be playing football now in the fall. And I think it's the opportunity to learn. But I think as you dig back into things, you need to move beyond the how and look at the why and understand the why behind things. There's a certain reason every coach runs that scheme. To learn that scheme, you can find it in a million places. You can find it free on YouTube. Go read an article. There's playbooks posted online for free, however they may have gotten their game film, etc. But understanding the why behind it, I think, is where you will get this distinct advantage as you go back into your learning if that's where you are at right now. Let's take a look at the next section, the coaching brotherhood. Contrary to public belief, most college coaches get along well. There may be a few enemies, but not many. Of course, a coach may be more competitive towards some teams than others. In my case, most of the time, the coaches are my best friends, even though our schools may be deadly rivals. You may think your wife and teenage daughters are telephone nuts, but you should see a head coach's phone bill. Coaches are constantly visiting over the phone, especially during the season. Sometimes they trade ideas on different techniques or ask opinions on upcoming opponents, Or sometimes they just want to talk to spread their nervousness and misery around. I remember once, right before the Texas Rice game in 1958, I called Bobby Dodd at Atlanta. Texas was undefeated through five games, and we had beaten Oklahoma for the first time in six years, and some of our backers had homestead on cloud nine. I felt we were overrated and that the team wasn't enthusiastic enough. There was a hornet's nest waiting for us in Houston, and we were walking into it, like Little Red Riding Hood with jam on her face. 
I didn't especially want any advice from Coach Dodd. Mainly, I suppose, it was a plea for sympathy. I described the squad's symptoms, the apparent attitude. He'd been down that same road several times in the past, but he couldn't help. He laughed and said it sounded as if there, we were in bad trouble. He was so accurate. Something like 34-7. to 7. I know for me, uh, looking back at that, you know, in my coaching career, I think it was somewhere around 2006, I had... Uh, the the privilege of being able to coach in Ohio's uh, all-star game, the North-South game, and I met uh, some incredible coaches there, too, who became uh, friends uh, pretty quickly. And I can remember, you know, that whole season, being on the phone almost every day, just talking to those guys, going through some of those things. Uh, coach Duffy, who's been on this, this podcast before, and uh, Coach Hall, who was uh, at Maslin and a number of other schools. And uh, having that kind of of, of a connection where you can call somebody up, get some perspective, I think is huge. And I think when we look at what's happened here, the ability to just get on a Zoom now and look at a few things on film, I think are huge tools. So be sure uh, those connections you've made here in this long off season uh, where we've been shut down and, and on Zoom a lot, make sure you keep those up. I think those are so important moving forward. The next section is called Coaches Approaches. Some of the more dedicated students of the game have put on their deep thinking caps and classified different psychological schools of coaching, the different approaches used by various coaches to communicate with their squads. Of course, there was the bombastic, dramatic personality of Newt Rockney, who played on young emotions so successfully. Another Notre Dame coach, Frank Leahy, was famous for oratorical splendor that seemed to inspire his squads. Coach Bryant, in his three stops at Kentucky, Texas, A&M, and Alabama, is always in the conversation with his coaching technique, which is usually called the Bear Bryant Hard-Nosed School, and many of the stories thereof. His 1957 Texas Aggies were playing Arkansas in the Ozark Hills, and Bryant's team, with the great John David Crow, was unbeaten through six games. The Aggies had a 7-6 lead late in the game when A&M quarterback Roddy Osborne, for some strange reason, called a flat zone pass. Arkansas halfback Donnie Stone picked off the pass and lit a shuck down the sideline. It looked like a certain Razorback touchdown and consequently a Razorback victory and maybe a Bear Bryant fit of apoplexy. But here came Osborne angling across the field as if Lucifer himself were in the rumble seat. Somehow he caught Stone after a long chase and the touchdown was staved off. The Aggies preserved their one-point margin and their 13th straight win. After the game, a dressing room visitor asked Osborne, was there any doubt in your mind that you could catch Stone? No, said Osborne, glancing at the stern-faced Bryant and shuddering. Stone was running for a touchdown, but I was running for my life. Old Bear rumbles around and says, "Ah, there ain't nothing to his fancy football. I'd rather just throw 22 men out on the field and see who can outbutt the other. This may be the popular image of Bryant, but let me assure you he doesn't have horns spouting out his forehead, nor does he tote around a cat of nine tails, and he is certainly one of the most astute and meticulous defensive technicians in the business today. The Other Schools You've heard about the stern fundamentalism of Bowden Wyatt and other Tennessee X's, the Tarm School of Bud Wilkinson at Oklahoma and Paul Dietzel at Army, the soft sell of Bobby Dodd at Georgia Tech, the Spittin' and Whitland philosophy of Frank Howard at Clemson, and Abe Martin at TCU, the loosey-goosey relaxation of Duffy, Darty, etc. That's the way these various portraits have been painted, anyway, and I suppose it's fairly accurate. 
it makes pretty good newspaper reading for all the fans anyway. But all these coaches, whether on the South 40 or Fifth Avenue in overalls or a silk suit, are attempting to accomplish the same purpose, get their people to intimidate the other side. And the foremost rule of psychological approach is be natural. You can't copy any of these coaches. A coach must be himself. I couldn't be a Bear Bryant. I wouldn't last a year. I don't think I could be a Bud Wilkinson, although I played under him and have been greatly influenced by him. I have to be a Royal, for better or for worse. If you're not completely natural, you couldn't convince your players that Doris Day is a girl. Again, what Coach Royal shares here is another one of those timeless things, that idea that you have to be yourself. So again, we come out of this period where we've learned so many different things, but at the heart of this, it has to come back to you and what you can teach your players, what you are comfortable doing and being you. Certainly you want to grow, you want to expand yourself, you always want to be pushing your horizon, but it has to come back to what you can do best. So always be you, I think, is a great message. The next section is called the new sophisticated player. The collegiate player of today has no more basic intelligence than the old timer, of course. The current athlete does have better training, better equipment, more coaching, earlier coaching, more opportunities. And the present species exist in greater numbers. No, they're no more intelligent, but they seem more worldly now, if that is the word. The players have a broader concept, more diversified interest, and it's a mistake to treat them with sandpile rules. When I was a youngster, it was a red-letter event to get 100 miles away from Hollis, Oklahoma. Nowadays, half your squad may have danced on the starlight roof, toured Canada on a bicycle, or had an audience with the Pope. It is a smaller world all the way around. In all probability, youngsters are harder for a coach to fool nowadays. If a coach is foolish enough to think he can fool them, Perhaps it's more correct to say a coach can't sway a team as he once could. In other words, I couldn't go before the Texas squad and give them a good old blood and guts pep talk such as Rockney used to inspire Notre Dame players. Today's kids are too smart for that. I couldn't rant and rave, though an emotional spiel would see right through me and start measuring me for that paper hat. I think it's interesting because if you go and read Rockney, you know, he he's he talks about some of those similar things. And I think coaches, as they see the players that they have in their time, understand that they have to treat them appropriately to what's going on in that day and age. You always have to be relevant, right, to the players. Uh, what may you may have done uh, when you were a player and the way your coaches may have treated you might not exactly be relevant to those players today. And I think that's what Coach Royal is saying there. I'm going to jump ahead a couple sections here to the next one that's called Keep It Simple. Once upon a time, as the story always goes, there was an old sea captain who was greatly respected as a wise, although reserved, skipper. He commanded a vessel for 50 years, and he had a peculiar habit that, is, that kept his officers and crew perpetually curious. Each morning, right after mess, he would return to his cabin, open a safe in the bulkhead, remove a slip of paper, and study it carefully. He, re- he would return the paper to the safe and go about his business of being a sage, respected old sea dog. Finally, the captain died at sea and his staff could hardly restrain themselves. The first mate rushed to the captain's cabin and found the wall safe open. He took out the slip of paper and read it carefully. Port left, starboard right. All of which is a roundabout way of illustrating another firm conviction. Football is growing entirely too complicated 
for its own good. I think that's another interesting one there. I've talked this offseason about that idea over and over again, and I think it started with Army tight ends coach Matt Drinkle and I uh, just going back and forth and texting one day, and this is really before COVID-19 hit, and we were talking about how the most successful offenses actually are very simple. They do some of those same concepts again and again. doesn't mean that they're simple uh, in the way they appear, but when you go and can get inside their playbook or you get inside the way they teach things, it's very simple to those players. And I think you look at a year where we're at right now, if you do have the ability to get on the field this year, more than ever, I think simple wins. There's going to be less practice time. There's going to be a lot of regulations. You're going to have to keep it simple for your players to go out and execute. And again, that doesn't mean that uh, you strip everything down so that you're also simple to defend. But the way you teach things, the way that you rep those things over and over again, I think is so important. The next section is avoid mistakes. There is the alarming tendency to stray away from the old basics of blocking, tackling, kicking, and avoiding mistakes. These are the flour and salt and meal of football, and if you try to mix them with a lot of other fancy ingredients, you may miss out on your daily bread. If there's anything a football team must do, it is to treat mistakes like a copperhead in the bedclothes. Avoid them with all the energy you can muster. I firmly believe this. As a coach, you may be a real high dumber. You may have a doctorate from MIT and be way ahead of other coaches in what you're trying to instruct your team to do. You may be smarter than, say, all the rest of the coaches in football. You can invent something new, imaginative, another dimension in football that's frightening in its potential. But if you can't get these ideas completely across to your squad, even though it's a great system of theories, then you have about as much chance as an old stump-tailed bull in fly time. Not sure what that means, but it doesn't sound good. Old Joe Medokes chewing tobacco, teaching the short punt formation, and playing a seven-diamond defense will throw a fire-eating team at you and knock your innovation out of the ballpark. Well, what does coach mean there? Uh, Again, it's that idea of keeping it simple, of not overwhelming your players. Uh, I think I had a a couple weeks ago Bob Hyland on, one of the winningest coaches ever in high school football, and he talked about one of the keys to his success was avoiding mistakes. And the way they avoided mistakes was to be able to get that repetition, to do things over and over again, to have their players know what to do in every single situation. And he valued that over innovation even more. And I think you go back to that one and listen, because I asked him a question about, you know, what do you do with all these young coaches who want to bring all these ideas and these, you know, these great ideas back to you? We've seen some great ideas shared over this off season here, this extended clinic season. And what do you do with that? And, and uh, you know, Coach, again, pointed back to, to him. It's about being simple and being mistake-free. And that's going to take you a long way. The next section is called, A Confused Player Cannot Be Aggressive. If a player is the least bit confused, he can't be aggressive. Tattoo that on your wall, or better still, on your wallet. You must play aggressive football to win. And you cannot be aggressive and confused at the same time. You may think a player is not giving his best effort. I've looked at game movies and thought that Jones kid is dogging it. He can't play first jumper on the Vassar Coits team. And later I found out that the Jones kid was simply confused. Let him get everything straight in his mind and be sure of his movements and purpose and he'll move mountains for you. 
A coach should do anything in his power to eliminate confusion and create good morale. You can't have a good morale with confused boys huddled together like sheep before a north wind. Example, many squads use a varied starting count by the quarterback. They'll break the rhythm of the snap signal. The quarterback may bark, hut to, hut to, pause, hut to, and the ball is snapped. Certainly, it might keep the defense wary and uncertain of when to charge, but it also handicaps the charge by your own offensive linemen. If your linemen have to strain and listen to tell exactly when they're going to take that first step, then they can't be concentrating on those individual guys on the other side of the line of scrimmage. We've tried it, as almost every team has, but we've found our linemen are having to think too much about when they can charge. They can't devote their wholehearted attention to beating the fellow facing them. After the ball is snapped, football is simply a process of reaction. A player doesn't have time to think. Well, let's see. I got to step off on my right foot if he moves this way, or I got to use my right flipper instead of my left flipper, or maybe I'll sag and give a little ground on the defense or submarine and meet the flood of blockers. This boy doesn't have time to think. He must have an automatic reaction to all situations. He must move like the village oaf who happened by the blacksmith shop one day. The smithy was hard at his business, hammering out a white-hot horseshoe. The bumpkin asked what it was, and the smithy told him it was a horseshoe and invited him to take a look. The poor fellow picked up the blistering shoe and quickly dropped it while the blacksmith roared with laughter. What's the matter, the smithy said. Nothing, said the bumpkin, wringing his hand. I just don't, it just don't take me all day to look at a horseshoe. Of course, that probably isn't a great anecdote for us today, but I think the point here is well taken that again keep it simple you know i believe in having cadence as a weapon but i think you can make an argument for what coach exactly said now if you are going to use a cadence as a weapon i would say you have to do it so that it just becomes part of what you do in that process process it becomes part of your player's thought process it can't be one of those things that you do every now and then because your players really aren't trained for it. And I do think it really comes down to training. The next section is be quick or dead. It would be pleasant and convenient if a player had all day to look at his horseshoe to decide how wide he should play or how tight or what sort of charge would be best in a certain situation. But football is a game of quickness and a certain amount of hectic confusion is unavoidable. From a vantage point high in the stands, the game looks clearly defined. The plays are outlined sharply, and the action is slowed down by actual eyeball distance from the scene. But down on the field, it is a massive jumble traffic jam of young bodies lunging and grunting and straining without the advantage of perspective. A player must be trained thoroughly. He must repeat the same drills over and over in practice so that he automatically responds to a situation. If his mind is cluttered by a lot of decisions, he won't react properly. He'll freeze. I think that point is so well explained there. I, we talked about that time and again. If, if uh, you haven't seen it, go to our deliberate practice series. If you go to SoundCloud and look up playlists, deliberate practice we've done for two seasons now. And we talk about just training the decision right into everything you do in the drill. That drills can't be uh, devoid of decision making. Maybe initially when you're teaching some certain skills, but remember that the game is always played within context, and within context, players are going to have to make very quick decisions. Keep that in mind. And again, it's the deliberate practice series. 
a couple sections left here. The next one's called Progress Towards Simplicity. At Texas, we made more progress in simplification when the flip-flop offense was installed than we really expected. We'll go into the flip-flop details later, but basically it is a plan of using a strong side and a weak side lineman so that the same lineman will always play the same relative position according to the balance of the formation. He'll have the same blocking assignment whether he's stationed on the right or the left side of the center. This cuts our blocking assignment at least in half. We had only one guard who pulled out of the line to run interference. He was the same guard every time. Although he might be on the left side of the center one play and the right side on the next play, you can readily see that this trimmed our guards' assignments to learn. Our linemen under the flip-flop plan have only five plays where they block at the point of attack. In other words, they have just five blocking assignments to learn. This doesn't count downfield blocking, but that phase of football isn't complicated. Downfield blocking is just a matter of effort and hustle. The only time a lineman really has to think is when the play is directed right over him. I love that concept. I've heard it again and again. Uh, there was a time, I, I think back in my early days of coaching, we used a flip-flop line. Um, it's one of those things, you know, that idea of that same thing over and over again, I think is so important. Now, with the advent of zone blocking, I think, you know, that maybe doesn't make as much sense. But, you know, if you want to look at that and think about what if you are a gap scheme team, I think a lot of those might make sense. So it's worth looking at. But, you know, those are the same things you'll hear about some of the air raid guys. I believe it's Mike Leach. His guys only play on one side of the ball as far as the receivers because they get those same repetitions over and over. So I think it's really where do you value that repetition when you put things together? It's something really to think about there. The last section is called When Variety is Not the Spice of Life. Many coaches still have a multitude of plays. There are more coaches who have too many plays than coaches who don't have enough. I just don't know of any examples of coaches not having enough plays. Take the Tennessee clan of coaches, disciples of General Robert Nayland. Most of the time, Nayland never, never used more than 25 plays. He often testified that he never ran a play in the game before it had been rehearsed at least 500 times in practice. It's not the number of plays you have, the general pre preached. It's the way you execute them. You always knew what Nayland was going to do said Alabama's Hank Crisp, but just try to stop him. Even today, Tennessee's players of 20 years ago can come back to a reunion and they can sit down and talk intelligently about the offense the Vols are running right now. The coaching staff is stuck with the same single-wing offense year after year and knows what it was looking for. By the time a boy becomes a senior, he knows exactly what the coaching staff is looking for. In our own case, the flip-flop, we were changing our Texas offense from week to week. We'd put in a set of plays for Baylor one week, then throw them out and put in another set for TCU the next week. We did so much play changing and switching of blocking assignments when we began spring practice that it was all a jumble mess. We actually had to start all over again. We had no carryover value. This was before the flip-flop. Simplified everything and gave us a simple set of plays we stuck to regardless of opponent. However, this point must be repeated again and again. You don't win games with the flip-flop offense. You don't win with the split T or the wing T or the unbalanced goose step or the man in motion thingamajig. You win games with aggressiveness and precise play execution, regardless of your offensive and defensive systems. You must force things to happen. Make the other team fumble, push their finger on the panic button, and grab the initiative. And you must eliminate confusion to have this aggressiveness, simplicity, 
it's wonderful. I think that's my favorite part. It really resonates uh, with things that have happened over my career. I can think back to 2004, and I think I may have told this story on here. It was the end of the 2003 season, and we went back through and looked at everything, and our offense was indiscernible. We had so many different things that we were getting into, and we'd do a little bit of this and that, and we changed this and that for, for different reasons, and we scrapped that whole thing, and we went to a zone-blocking offense and turned it around. Uh, we really, that year, a lot of people thought we would be about 6-4, and four, maybe 500 in that particular year. We went 9-1, and one, uh, went into uh, the, the playoffs, won a game in the playoffs. We lost to one team twice, unfortunately, our rival. But we turned things around offensively, set all kinds of school records by being simple. We were going to run stretch. We were going to run inside zone. We were going to run the naked off of it. And we would do those things again and again and again. We had a couple other things that would fit in for us. But everything was built around initially that stretch play. And there was a reason why, you know, going back to understanding the why, what, what Coach Royal said, there was a reason why we had those other plays within our system and a reason why we would call them. And I think, you know, I can't emphasize enough how important that is today if you want to be successful. You know, going back to, again, Coach Highland, he talked about that again and again, made that almost that same story about how players can come back and call his offense because really nothing has changed over the years and they just execute. So I think, as I said, a lot of great knowledge there from Coach. I want everybody um, to stay positive. Um, Keep working with your kids regardless of what happens this season. The kids need us more than ever right now. I think as adults we get frustrated with this, but I think we need to be uh, behind, you know, the hope for our kids that whatever happens with the season, they keep developing and growing and um, football's going to come back here, hopefully sooner than later. Uh, please just stay on top of things uh, for your youth communities who are starting uh, up for football this year, and hopefully they play as well. Um, we've put together uh, some great resources in our return to play. If you go um, to usafootball.com backslash return, uh, you'll be able to find those there, as well as resources on our football development model. Please check those out. 